We had some battery troubles, but we got them repaired. Good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, would you please turn to Mark chapter 14? If you don't, we have plenty of extras. Just raise your hand, and we'll be glad to give you a Bible. A couple quick things. First of all, uh, this month, we have another 55 and over potluck. If you're interested in that, there will be people at the welcome desk afterward. It's going to be next Sunday after the service. Also want to encourage you to see if you can make it out this Wednesday night. We have a Thanksgiving service at 7 o'clock. And one of the things that I really enjoy about that is we just open it up for a portion of it. Pastor Austin's going to share from the Word, but just a chance to give testimony. The Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So you certainly will be blessed, and maybe you'll have something that God wants you to share. Also, this uh, December 2nd, Monday, remember, that's our big women's outreach, Simply Christmas. Really exciting. There's already 200 ladies signed up. It's specifically targeted for outreach. Now, there's a minimal cost. It's $10, but a generous donor has come forward and said, listen, anybody who brings a guest, I'll pay for them. So if you have not registered, there's only a limited amount of seats left, but be praying for that, and then if you feel so inclined, we'd love to have you sign up and maybe try to bring a friend. Particularly, we're trying to reach people who may not have a relationship with Christ yet. I think that's all the main things we wanted to share. So we're now in the gospel of Mark chapter 14. And I want to remind you that the early church, I want you to think about what it was like to be a Christian in the early church. They didn't have Bibles yet. They only had the Old Testament and they didn't even own personal copies. So at best, they would have someone read from the scrolls of the Old Testament, but the teachings of Jesus were just passed on orally. So the apostles had begun to record things, and the gospels were being written, but they understood that being a Christian was to be a follower of Christ, to believe in him, receive his free forgiveness, and then become like him. And so they would speak about the life of Christ often. In fact, Colossians 3 says, let the words of Jesus dwell in you richly, and then you teach and admonish one another. And they would ask, hey, what would Jesus do? And so the life of Jesus at that time was oral tradition. They passed it on, and they would speak often about Christ's life. Well, if you think about it, they didn't give equal time to the life of Jesus. It wasn't like they talked about his 33-year biography. They spent a lot of time talking about his Passion Week. In fact, many of the Gospels, like Mark, spend about a third of the book talking about that last week in the life of Jesus because it's so important. And so they would think about strategic things that happened during Passion Week. And today we're going to look at a really interesting passage involving one of Jesus's trials. But even the very trials that Jesus went through, in a moment I'm going to show you a slide. The night he was arrested, he went through six different trials. It wasn't just one trial. But when he stood before Pilate at the end, and made his confession, that cost him his life. And he could have easily just bailed. And so when Paul wrote to Timothy, oops, back up one, he actually was challenging Timothy in the face of persecution to remember the confession of Jesus. He said, Timothy, I want you to fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you called, and you made the good confession in the presence of, God, of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus. Now look at the underlying phrase. Who testified the good confession before Pilate. And so, so the early church would talk about these things and think about, yeah, remember the, the love and boldness of Jesus. 
as he, that night, underwent six trials. What we're going to look at in Mark is not his confession before Pilate. We're going to see Jesus' confession before Caiaphas. But, but this particular passage is so profound because it's really where the rubber now meets the road. Because back in chapter 8, Jesus had said, said to the disciples, if you're going to come after me, you have to deny yourself and be willing to take up your cross and die. Then in chapter 10, three different times he said, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem. You need to mark this down. This is what's going to happen to me. They're going to deliver me over to the spiritual leaders, the chief priests and scribes. They're going to condemn me to death. They're going to give me over to the Roman Gentiles. They're going to mock me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to scourge me, and they're going to kill me, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. Then in chapter 13, we saw just a couple weeks ago, he said to his followers, now you guys need to be on your guard because they're going to bring you before governors and kings, and you're going to be a witness. And then last week, we saw Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane literally pleading with Peter, your eagerness is no substitute for watchfulness. I know you think you got this, Pete, but you don't. So you need to be prayerful. Well, now the rubber meets the road. Now Jesus and Peter are going to be put in contrast, and we're going to see what it looks like to give a bold confession as a Christ follower. It's a really challenging passage. And it's kind of like watching, if you've ever seen the show, This Is Us. It's, it's going back and forth from scenes. So it starts with Jesus and Peter, then it does Jesus, then it comes back to Peter. So the first thing I want to do is just kind of by way of background, let's get the big picture in mind. Remember the city of Jerusalem. During the Passover, Jews came from all over the world. It wasn't just the Jews around there. So it's been estimated that as many as 6 million Jews crowded into this area for the Passover feast, right? So there's, there's a madness, there's a chaos of people everywhere. And the temple here, we're going to look at a picture of that. But remember, Jesus had left the temple. They were admiring how beautiful it is. He goes, this thing's going to be tore down. And then he went out here on the eastern side to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, that's where we saw last week he got arrested. When they arrest him, they're going to bring him through the city, and he's going to go through six different trials. He's going to be bounced around like a pinball. But he's going to start at the home of the high priest Caiaphas, and that's where they suspect that his home was. So remember, the temple was, as we saw there, the place of worship. But when Jesus was arrested, he didn't immediately get taken to the place where they normally held these type of courts. There was a place right on the temple, and I'm going to show you a picture, in which the high priests met for this kind of like supreme court, the, 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 this council. But instead, they take Jesus to the home of the high priest, of which there's two guys involved. There's Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas, and it appears they kind of co-reign. So in Mark, that's what we're going to see. Jesus sits at the palace of the high priest. Then he gets dragged to the palace of Herod. We read about that in Luke. Then he gets dragged to the palace of Herod Antipas. He's dragged all over the place until eventually, at the end, 9 o'clock the next morning, they nail him to the cross. So look with me in verse 53. It says, they led him away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Now, if they had been following protocol, they would meet in this particular area. It was a very specified place. This was their little chamber on the outside 
of the temple. It was called the Chamber of Hewn Stone. And so on the inside, they had chairs for these 70 leaders called the Sanhedrin. In fact, here's a picture of what it would look like on the inside. So normally, if this was a formal proceeding where they're having capital offense charges, like this guy could die, that's where they should have held the trial. But instead, we have no records of them ever doing this anywhere else. They just went to someone's house. They went to the high priest's house. Ought to tell us right from the beginning, hey, I'm not sure Jesus is getting a fair shake here. I'm not sure he's getting an unbiased trial. So notice verse 54. It says, Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he is sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now, this particular home, obviously, it's not there anymore. But in the third or fourth century, they think they found the remains of it. And there's now a big church that was built there. But they think that the high priest lived in something like this. The word that was used to describe his home was like a palace. So this guy was making money off religion. But look at the size of this place. So it wasn't like they dragged him to some little back room wooden shack. And so Peter, it says, is warming himself in the courtyard. They think these are some of the remains of that actual place. And this was a place where they would put the prisoners when they were considering what they would do with them. And so Peter's probably down here at the courtyard. And Jesus is up here. And they're having sort of this quick gathering. The whole priesthood's not there. All 70 of them are not there. Because remember, at least Nicodemus, we know he was a godly man. He became a believer. We know Joseph of Arimathea was a godly, uh, God-fearing man who was looking for the kingdom of God. So they didn't even probably have all of them together. But I want you to notice the wording. It says, Peter followed him at a distance. Now that's ominous, at a distance. One commentary said it this way. Distance is usually a foreshadow of denial. You don't wake up one day far away from Christ. But as soon as you start putting distance between you and Christ, it's time to take heed, recalculate, recalculate. So he's already following him at a distance, right into the courtyard, and he's sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now, later it's going to say he's with the servants. Wait a minute, these are, the, these are the henchmen. The servants were part of the group that just arrested Jesus. The servants are the ones that are going to be punching Jesus in the face. What's he doing sitting with them? I couldn't help but think of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. Here's Peter trying to just co-mingle with these godless enemies of Christ. It says in verse 55, now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Like, wait, I, I, I thought the job of these guys was to give people a fair trial. You can see this, this is all the way back to Mark chapter 2. And from that time, they determined we got to put this guy to death. This was not a fair trial. These guys are begging for a way to kill Jesus. And so what we're going to see is the mockery as this trial unfolded. There was nothing just or fair about it. So they're actually looking for people who can give them a reason to put him to death. 
Look at verse 56. Many were giving false testimony against him, yet their testimony wasn't even consistent. I mean, normally you just throw that out. You guys, get out of here, right? He said, oh, I think he did. Well, finally, verse 57 says, some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, we heard him say this, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. But that's not even what he said. But he did say something like that once, and what he was talking about was his death. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up, John chapter 2. But John says he was talking about the temple of his body. In other words, he's simply saying, when you kill me three days after, God's going to raise me from the dead. But notice verse 59, not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. Caiaphas is the guy who's trying him, Caiaphas and Annas. Earlier, we read in the Gospel of John that Caiaphas had already determined, we need to kill this guy for national security. It's for the greater good of the people. One man better die so we can save our nation. So the very guy who's the, the, the final authority in this court has already determined, we need to kill this guy. And when he couldn't get any substance, he decides to take matter into his own hands. But before we do that, I want to remind you that the Jews had extra-biblical literature that they recorded a lot of their rules and regulations and principles. And one of those books is called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah had very clear instructions. You couldn't just condemn someone to die. In fact, the Romans couldn't even actually carry that out. If they condemned someone to die, they had to go to the Romans and see if the Romans would allow them to do this. But these are some things in the Mishnah. It says they have to have at least 23 members of the 70 Sanhedrin, and they have to have reason for their conviction. Certainly, they didn't have a whole bunch of the guys there. We don't know how many were there. But one of their rules was this. If we find someone guilty and we condemn him to die, we must wait until a second day. And both of those Sittings had to take place during the day. That's in their rule book. This is how you do it, okay? And that makes sense. You know when you're angry at somebody, you're ready to shoot off an email, and then you're like, I better just think about this. So if you judge that you're going to kill somebody, this guy needs to die, then, then, then you, you, you slept on it for a night, then you came back during the day. None of that. It was never to be on a Sabbath or the eve of a festival. Well, that was out the door. Witnesses, before they ever witnessed, were to give be given severe warnings about gossip and hearsay. Not these guys. They're like, please, somebody, can somebody give us a, I don't care if it's a false testimony, we got to get this guy. And then when he's finally charged with blasphemy, their rule book said, you could not be charged with blasphemy unless you blaspheme God's name itself. And then you were worthy of stoning. And there's no evidence that they ever met in a house. They always met in that court. So, when the high priest couldn't get anybody else, verse 60 says, he rose and came forward and questioned Jesus. Do you make no answer to what these men are testifying against you? Now, you might want to underline this phrase, but he kept silent and made no answer. When you think about how hard that would be, your life is on the line, and people are just making stuff up about you. You know how hard it would be not to jump in and say, I never did that. I didn't say it. That's not true. 
These guys are lying. And Jesus just sits there with this profound silence. What is he, what's going through his mind? Why does he say nothing? Pilate's like, dude, don't, or, or Caiaphas is going, don't you understand? You're not, you don't have anything to say? Well, I want us to think about that. First of all, I think Jesus understood this, that anything I say will be used against me. Like, these guys aren't looking for truth. So, on the one hand, you go, it was probably wise of him to be silent. But there's something bigger here, and that is, this was prophesied about Jesus. Hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth, the prophet Isaiah predicted the sufferings of Christ. And in Isaiah 53, he said, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. That's a cool verse. In fact, that's the same verse that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading in Acts chapter 8, and he's sitting there going, who is this guy? And that's when Philip says, that's talking about Jesus. But let, let's take a moment and think about his silence, because Matthew Henry says something interesting here about the silence of Jesus. He said, it certainly sets an example of two things. Number one, of patience. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says this. If you as a Christian suffer unjustly, this finds favor with God because Christ has set an example of this. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return, but he kept entrusting himself to God. And so as the apostles thought about the silence of Jesus, they're like, there are times where God knows that what you're being punished for or accused of is not true. But we're called to follow the example of Christ, who didn't get all worked up, scream, holler, shout, get angry, but instead, he simply endured it because that's what God called him to do. But we know what was going through his mind. Peter says he kept entrusting, Lord, you know, Father, you know this isn't true. And again, the prophet Isaiah had predicted this. Isaiah predicted that Christ would give my back to those who strike me and my cheek to those who pluck out the beard. That's, that's why we believe Jesus had a beard for a number of reasons. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. What an example. There are times as a Christian where people are going to go off on you. Sometimes there's a time to speak and sometimes there's a time to just trust the Lord. I think also Jesus modeled for us the importance of prudence. Sometimes the less we say, the better. Isaiah chapter 29 speaks of a time when evil people would ensnare man by a word. Isaiah 29, 20. They would defraud the person who was right with meaningless arguments as they snare him in a word. Sometimes silence is better. But when he asks Jesus this question, Verse 61, are you the Messiah? Now, at that point, if Jesus said, yes, I am, there's nothing wrong with that. Number one, he would not have been the first person to claim to be the Messiah. There were other people at the time who claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus said, beware of those who claim to be the Messiah. In fact, in 70 AD, there was a, a, a Jewish rabbi that many followed who who claimed to be the Messiah. But they added a phrase. They said, are you the Messiah? But then they added this phrase. This is what Caiaphas said. Are you the son 
of the blessed one? Now that, that raises the stakes because now he's not just asking Jesus, are you the one that David prophesied one of his descendants? But they're asking Jesus, are you claiming to be God? Are you claiming to be the son of God? I remember talking to a Muslim man one time and he said, Jesus never claimed to be God. I'm thinking, hmm, not sure he's read carefully. Because Jesus answered, verse 62, I am. But he didn't stop there. Because he understood that the Jews of that time knew a lot of scripture. And he quoted two very famous passages. Ones that probably, as you're reading your Bible more, those who are more mature in the faith and are reading the word, you probably have heard these. But most of us probably, I never even heard these passages. Because the Jews were waiting for the Messiah and they knew what the scripture said about him. So in Daniel chapter 7, if you've never read this, that's going to be your homework because Jesus is going to quote from Daniel 7. But in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel describes a vision and a dream. And he sees God the Father on the throne. And he's called the Ancient of Days, right? His hair is white like wool. And then he says, I saw one like a son of man coming up to him. Now we know that this is actually Jesus. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the cloud, now don't miss this, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Now, if we had time, we keep reading this passage because then God the Father gives to the son of man in the clouds there power and dominion over all the nations, okay? This is Jesus' favorite term for himself. I'm the son of man. But then he combined this scripture with another passage. He combined it with Psalm 110. Psalm 110 was a famous psalm that David had written. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You have heard that before because if you've been listening and we're going through Mark, Jesus quoted this. He said, if, if Messiah is David's son, why does David call the Messiah Lord? But notice what it says. The Lord says to my Lord, this is King David, <clears throat> the Lord says to my Lord, he's talking about Jesus. He's prophesying. This didn't happen yet. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So the idea of the Messiah being seated at the right hand of God was an official endorsement, a coronation, so to speak, it was, a, it was a seat of authority and power in which God the Father was saying to him, I'm going to give you the earth. I'm going to give you the nations. I'm going to give all judgment. Just sit right here. And then you're going to come, and I'm going to make your enemies a footstool at your feet when you come and crush them with a rod of iron. So look what Jesus does. He says, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? He goes, I am. And you are going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, if you have to read between the lines, and he says, and you ain't going to like it, because right now you have me on trial, and you're judging me falsely, but when I come back, I'm going to put you on trial. And so while you have me on trial, you should be trembling, because I'm the Messiah, and I'm Lord of all, and you're going to come under my judgment but their hardened minds didn't have anything to do with it. Verse 63 says, 
Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And we already knew the answer to that because they're all like, let's kill him. Oh, he's worthy of death. And you know, this is kind of something that culture has been doing forever. We got to get rid of Jesus. You can, you can explain him away. You can ignore him. You can mellow him out. You can fight against him. But I can't possibly bring myself to say, wait, this guy died and rose again. He's Lord of all. There's no way to God but through him. And he's coming to judge the living and the dead. I was talking to a young man this week I met and was thinking about Randy Newman and questioning evangelism and so we started talking, and he had some very unusual ideas about the world, but he goes, I'm kind of on a quest for truth, and said, he said, in fact, I went to Calvary Chapel for like a year, I read through the whole Bible, I listened to Pastor Cho, and I'm on a quest for truth, and I said, but, but so what you're saying is you stopped doing that a long time ago, oh yeah, 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 and now he's still on his quest for truth, so I said, well, wait a minute, let me, let me just ask you a question, so having gone to church and read the Bible and listened to the truths about Jesus, would it be fair to say that you've decided that Jesus is not who he said he was and that you don't really believe that Jesus is the son of God who died and rose again, who's coming to judge the living and the dead? So I guess what you're saying is you've come to realize that Christ's words are not credible. He goes, well, no, I'm not really saying that. And I said, well, then I would encourage you to keep reading and keep thinking about who this Jesus is before you just dismiss him in your quest for truth. And I would say that to all of you. If you're in a quest for truth, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the light. There's no one who's going to come to God but through me. Verse 63 says, tearing his clothes, he said, we don't need any more witnesses. Now, even the Old Testament said, the high priest shall never rend his garments. Right? The high priest was supposed to be a man under composure. Matthew Henry pointed out something interesting here. He said, you know, there's kind of an irony, and I don't think this is intended, but Caiaphas represented the Mosaic law and the Levitical priesthood. I'm done with that. But remember Christ's garment, nobody tore that because, as Henry says, he's now the high priest that reigns forever. It's kind of ironic when you think about it. The disciples are trying to figure out who is this guy, who is this guy, who is this guy? The two people that gave the clearest testimony and confession of Christ were Caiaphas. So you're the Christ, the son of the blessed one, and the centurion at the cross. Truly, this was the son of God. And yet, here we have Peter about to be on trial. Now, look at verse 65. It says, some began to spit at him, to blindfold him, and to beat him with their fists. And to say to him, prophesy. Now here's something really striking to think about. Before this was happening, Jesus told the disciples, we're going up to Jerusalem. They're going to spit on me and beat me with their fists. And then they're going to kill me. Now they're punching him in the face going, prophesy. If I was Jesus, I'd say, I already did. What you're doing right now, I prophesied that. But instead, he received it without a word. And then the officers received him with slaps in the face. They're just, they're, they're making sport of him. They're just beat. Let's get the big picture. This is God. 
God comes to planet Earth in the form of a man, and this is how we treat him? What do you mean, we? You see, this is the heart and soul of what the Bible teaches about humanity, is that we're in rebellion against God. It was my sin, the songwriter said, that put him there until it was accomplished. And how incredible that God would endure this for us. How incredible that Jesus would receive this awful treatment. But you know, it's also ironic that Jesus has been keeping it a secret. The devils are going, you're the son of God, be quiet. You're the son of God, be quiet. You're the, be quiet. And now, yeah, I am. Because what they needed to understand is that the Messiah, the son of God, was going to suffer. And so now, he's willing to publicly be acknowledged. But just to take this, J.R. Edwards said this. He said, think of the irony in this whole trial. The Sanhedrin, who's supposed to keep the law, is breaking the law, while Jesus, who's being accused, is really keeping the law. The Sanhedrin seeks testimony against Jesus, but the false witnesses don't have any. But then Caiaphas unknowingly gives the true witness. Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin, but one day they're going to stand in trial before Jesus. The high priest accuses Jesus of blasphemy, but he's the one who's blaspheming. In fact, the Jews called this night, Passover night, the night of observation. Night of observation before the Passover. Remember Pilate's words, behold the man, right? This is the world's estimation of God. Come to earth, and on the night of observation, they're slapping him, spitting on him, and mocking him. If that doesn't move you, then check your heart. Meanwhile, there's another trial about to open below, but it's a very different trial. It's Peter's trial, his test. Look at verse 66. Now, Peter was below in the courtyard, and one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you too were with Jesus, the Nazarene. Now remember, Jesus had just earlier that evening said, I don't care if I have to die. I'm going with you. And, and, and Jesus says to him, no, Pete, actually, you should be praying because before a cock crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. Jesus said, we're going to go up there. I'm going to suffer. You're going to bear witness. You're going to suffer. At the moment, of even considering that he might suffer, Peter completely bails in a surprise, in a terror, as though he had never heard of Jesus. He's terribly afraid of suffering. At the first sound of it, he's willing to do anything so that he doesn't get hurt. So there's kind of a rising crescendo here. He denies it. Look at verse 68, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. Those are two strong words. The one word has to do with an intellectual knowledge. The other one has to do with an experiential knowledge. I don't have anything to do. He, listen to this. Not once would he even let the name Jesus come out of his mouth. He goes, this man, this fellow. But then note carefully in verse 68, it says, and he went out onto the porch. Why he did that? 
Somebody once said this. They said, a change of location is no substitute for a change of heart. A lot of people make a mess of their life, and they think, well, let me just do a makeover. Just change my location, change my spouse, change my job, change my... Listen, that's no substitute for a change of heart. So what it looks to me is that Peter's, he's, he's still on his downward spiral. He's already hiding at a distance. Now he moves even further away. But as the Bible says, your sin will find you out. It says in verse 69, the maid Solomon began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. I want you to think about that. What does that mean? Hey, are you one of them? Who's them? It's not about them. It's about Jesus. But already people were forming an opinion about Jesus. That either you were on his side or you weren't. That you were a follower and you were all in or you weren't. And if you were, you would say, I'm one of them. Verse 70, but again he was denying, and after a little while, the bystanders who were again saying to Peter, surely you're one of them, for you're a Galilean too. The light just keeps shining on Peter. Now, I always misunderstood this verse. It says he began to curse and swear, and I'm going, well, Peter was a fisherman, and you know, fishermen and sailors, he swears like a, and I'm like, well, actually, as I, as I looked up this word, curse, it doesn't always mean to say bad words. He wasn't dropping F-bombs. Instead, it means to swear under oath, to pronounce an anathema or a curse on yourself. In other words, if I know that guy, may a curse come down on my head. He's liter- this is probably worse than swearing. Like he's literally, he's literally making an oath that I don't even know what you're talking about. Verse 72 says, immediately a cock crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made this remark, before a cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now, we learn from the other gospel that he also made eye contact, that Jesus turned and looked at him. But don't miss this. It says, he began to weep. But as you're growing and learning to look things up in commentaries and, and be able to study things in a little more detail and see the original language, this is a very unusual phrase. It literally uses a word that means to beat upon or throw upon. So he beat upon to weep. He threw upon to weep. And so I looked this up in in the standard dictionary for, for the New Testament Greek, and it said the word can mean begin, but more likely it has the idea of a gesture connected with lamentation. In other words, it, it, it might be something like this. He just beat himself and started weeping. In fact, one commentary said he, 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 he wept. He continued weeping. He flung out. He wept. He burst into tears. He threw himself down. He wept. He covered his face. He wept. He cast his garment over his head. He wept. He might not be seen to weep. He cast his eyes upon Jesus, and he looked upon himself. He threw himself into confusion over his own face. And, you know, I could kind of relate to that. Have you ever done something that you really, really feel terrible about? So you go, hmm, what am I going to do with this passage? So I want to start with a couple questions here. This is still working. Can you help me here? This isn't working. Anybody back there? Go to the next slide. 
Yeah. Let's ask ourselves, what do you think you would do if something similar to Peter happened to you today? What do you think you would do? How quickly did you formulate an answer? If you're pretty sure you know what you would do, I want you to just kind of think it through a little bit. Are you okay with that? Because some of you probably immediately go, I, I know what I would do. I would do exactly what Peter did. Right? But that's, that's probably not a good place to stay. Because that's the point that Jesus made the, the, the chapter before when he said this. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Because it wasn't without notice that Jesus often said, if you're ashamed of me and you deny me, I'll be ashamed of you and I'll deny you. Now, the wonders of the grace of God is that Peter didn't get kicked to the curb because God called him to himself. But I want you to wrestle with this. If you're not willing to identify with Christ, even from the beginning, to call yourself a born-again Christian, a follower of Christ, a believer... Mind you, the Bible says you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. If you're too ashamed to even identify yourself as a follower of Christ, are you okay with that? Do you say, oh yeah, I believe in the Lord, but I'm not going to get up there and dunked in that water and have to tell others that I'm a Christ follower? Are you okay with that? Or is it possible that Jesus might want something to change, where, where you have to do some soul searching and wrestling and saying, Lord, take my life and let me live it unashamed of you anymore. Maybe you've been okay with, I just witnessed by my life, right? Does that, does, Peter could have just witnessed by his life, just stay silent. To be a Christian is not just to witness by your life. It's to identify yourself and to live your life for Christ. I wish less people would call themselves Christ followers if they're not going to live like that. But the reality is, Jesus wants us to not only identify with him, but to live our life for him. You go, but, but wait a minute. If he did that, he would have died. But let's think about that for a moment. I'm going to suggest that that might be easier. Easier than what? Just get it over with. Just go, I am, now shoot me. And then you're in heaven, right? But Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, I want you to take up your cross and die daily and follow me. In some ways, it might be said that it's harder to live for Christ than to die for Christ, because you could get that over. And if you're really wondering whether you'd be willing to die for Christ, you could probably answer that by asking, am I willing to live for Christ? Because if you come to a place where you say, my life is no longer my own, I want to live it for you, Jesus, then you've sort of already begun to answer that question. But then, for those of you who said, I know I'll compromise, I just talked to you, but what about some who said, oh man, no way. I got this. I sing it every day. You give and take away my heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. And I wonder if we ought not to just stop and look at Peter and say, well, 
was I a little too quick to say, not me, I'm, I'm in, Jesus, because that's exactly what Peter said. So maybe for some of us, we need to stop and go, hey, let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. It's easy in the fair weather right now, like, oh, yeah, I'd go down with him in a minute. And to kind of say, wow, Lord, I don't know what I would do, but I, I'm going to start praying about that. I'm going to start praying about being bold and, and turning away from sin. And even if it costs me, I'm going to start trying to do what you would want me to do. I want to read a fascinating book. My wife was reading to me from Rosario Butterfield, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She was a lesbian professor at Syracuse, and she was the chairman of the queer studies. That's what they were called. And they were her, she was their golden boy. Everyone loved her, and she was all, but she tells the story of how as she was confronted with the claims of Christ and she was reading the New Testament to try to discount it, the struggle, the torture that she went through to go, listen, if I were to change my mind, I lose everything. And yet, wonderful book, she gladly tells how God changed her life and she passed from death to life. And so this morning, I think it's a wonderful time for us as a church to say, Lord Jesus, First of all, let's praise Jesus that he kept silent and went to the cross for us. Amen? So we need to be humbled. Someone came to me and said, you know, Pastor, he said, I, I, I actually, I, 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 I felt really guilty when you told that story. But yesterday, I did witness to the nurse, but I'm not like you. And I go, wait a minute, please, don't say that. I think we all need to hear this and say, it's not about being like somebody else, but saying, if this is who I was, what does Christ want me to be? And how am I going to get there apart from casting myself in full surrender and regular dependence on him? Can you imagine what it would look like if a church full of people who are sold out to Christ, who are honest and say, man, if it wasn't for the grace of Jesus, I would be worse than Peter. But this is a great challenge because I think it's coming in America very soon where it's going to be costly to identify with Christ. And we're not going to get ready just by going, come on, we got this. We're going to get ready as we're on our knees, as we're pleading with God to move in our hearts. And we're going to find the Spirit of God moving through us in, in powerful ways as we begin to go, wow, the Lord is at work in our midst. So would you join me as we pray? Father, we thank you. Thank you so much for Jesus. As Paul told Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, he made the good confession. Thank you, Jesus, so much <coughs> that everything that Adam and we messed up, you came to repair. Thank you for the cross where you shed your blood because we're sinners, we're cowards, and we're traitors like Peter. But it's by your mercy that we've been born again. And having been made alive, please help us. We can't go back and undo the past, but please help us to not fall into the same trap that Peter did. Simply because he didn't take to heart your words. Watch and pray. May we become more reflective. May we become more watchful. May we become more careful with our words and our choices. 
because of what Jesus did for us. Lord, empower us to change and grow. And maybe today someone will finally say, I'm ready to follow Christ and to be identified with him. Father, maybe someone will come Wednesday night and stand up and confess with their mouth that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. They are ready to follow him. Thank you for what you're doing in our church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. I hope to see many of you on Wednesday night. If you wouldn't mind helping to stack the chairs, are we doing that? I think we're still doing that. Stacks of eight while you're talking. It's a big help.